Hi, I'm Richard Deitch, host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. Hey, everyone. I'm Maggie Gray, host of The Gray Area. Hi, I'm Ted Keith, host of the SI Vault Podcast. For more than 60 years, Sports Illustrated has championed its brand of quality sports journalism. Now SI has a new partnership, one that helps us tell the stories that matter to your life through today's mobile channels. So as of today, all 11 Sports Illustrated podcasts are joining the Panoply Network with more new titles on the way soon. Visit SI.com slash podcasts for more info. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the B-Side, episode 10 of our national conversation about conversations about race, the Quaaludes in my Jello episode. I'm Baratunde Thurston, dialing in from Los Angeles, and joining me from Panoply's New York studio, our co-hosts, co-discussants, Raquel Cepeda. Hey, what's up, Raquel? what's up? What's up, what's up? And back from vacation in the Berkshires, Tanner Colby. What's up, Tanner? Uh, a lot, but we'll get to it uh, when we record the main show. Welcome back. Thank you we very much. You. I missed you. I missed dearly. you guys yes, too. God, I'm thinking about you all I day. I know, just sitting there with my family the whole time. I was like, why aren't I with my co-discussants? <laughs> <laughs> so in uh, in our last episode with uh, guest co-host Farai Chidea, we talked about two main topics: the controversy over Black Lives Lost in the custody of law enforcement, and our collective failure to hold Bill Cosby accountable for the still growing list of allegations of sexual assaults, now over 40, being leveled against him. Uh, This is the show where we extend the conversation to you, our listeners. Uh, So we have a great mix of emails, voicemails, and social media posts. I'm gonna jump right in. So this is an email from Regina. She opened by sharing a story of her own experience with uh, sexual assault. It's a quote from Regina. I can identify to a great extent with the alleged victims of Bill Cosby and their emotional pain and inner conflicts. I do not want my comments to in any way condemn the alleged victims or excuse any reprehensible behavior by Mr. Cosby. However, in our rush to take down and vilify another black man, I believe the wider problem of a culture who condones such behavior, i.e. the entertainment industry, has been lost. There are many young women and men who have wanted careers in modeling, acting, and music, who've also been assaulted, intimidated, and used sexually. Some have been children. This practice has been very common in the past and is prevalent even now. However, I believe because of Mr. Cosby's race, we as a society have concentrated on being horrified about his actions as though they happened in a bubble and no one else in Hollywood or related industries is doing this. The truth is sadly very different. So thanks for the message, Regina, uh, and for the reminder that Bill Cosby is part of an industry, one whose capital I'm sitting in right now, and that the use of sex as a weapon, as a bribe, as a uh, a, a way to um, force people who want something to give up something is not limited to this man. Uh, Tanner and Raquel, what do you guys have to say, if anything, about uh, Regina's take on this being bigger than the cause? Well, it's definitely bigger than the cause. I think, I mean, one thing she said, our rush to vilify a black man, was that the quote? I think the whole point of the story is that we were not in a rush exactly. to vilify him. What elevates his actions above the sort of garden variety predation that goes on is men using power, getting a woman on a casting couch, forcing yourself on her because she's powerful. You know, the drugging is really what takes this to to the next level over and above the all too common and unfortunate ways that men use power and coercion to get sex. So I don't think we were in a rush to nail Cosby. 
uh, we were not in enough of a rush to nail Cosby. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me, too, of like, you know, there was a time in the 60s in um, Massachusetts in that area where Cosby was living there, and so was my uh, daughter's grandmother, who was very, 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 she still is, but was very, very beautiful, modernly looking back then, and she was living with, um, her husband was a jazz musician, and the kind of unspoken rule was not to allow your woman to go to Bill Cosby's house. It's like really? everybody knew, even from back then, nobody that I know of that era is surprised at all. And actually, I was on, on HuffPo uh, yesterday and saw that three more people came out. Mm-hmm. So, right. you know, out of all this ugliness, um, it's good to see women coming out and kind of forming this kind of solidarity with one another, you know, the, the people who survived him. Right. What was fascinating to me listening to you guys talk about this was, uh, you know, y'all really took it from the, obviously because we're a show about race, from the racial angle of protecting this man and, you know, Beverly Johnson, these black women not wanting to come forward for fear of taking down a, a respectful, you know, black icon or respectable black icon. But what fascinated me about it is to look at the women who were publicly accusing him 10 years ago were white. And they were the first ones to come out. And no one listened to them at the time. And you know, the myth of the black male as the violent sexual predator taking advantage of the helpless white woman is like one of the foundational prejudices and most pernicious stereotypes that undergirds the racism in this country. And for years, if a white woman accused a black man of looking at her wrong... He could be lynched the next day. And to have the flip of that, that a white woman could come forward and say this about a black man and that no one would listen, shows you how power really works in addition to just race. Because he was very powerful. He was a man. It's all about the money. And it's all about the money and it's all about protecting what he he represented. And And to me, just the fact that white women could accuse a black man of rape and it went nowhere it's kind of crazy, right? But it wasn't only white women. <laughs> no, but but at the time, the the first public accusations were yeah. were white. The first public, but it was but it was women. mostly. And yeah. now it's come out that it's yeah. everyone. And that's a part of uh, Regina's point. So I want to thank her for bringing that up. Move on to one other comment we got about Cosby, which is from someone who asked to remain anonymous. This is another victim of sexual assault who was a student at an Ivy League uh, grad school uh, at the time that this happened. And uh, she explains why she didn't come forward, in part because the person who attacked her was a friend and an immigrant from a different country, but she felt some kind of solidarity to protect this uh, minority group. But she adds, what was more important to me, though, is that I did not want to interrupt my own graduate program, which I had a full ride to. I knew that he had the money to fight back. I knew he was part of the global elite. All I was was a working class Latina on scholarship whose family did not have the money or ties to help me fight back. Frankly, I did not have the time to be in a top competitive program and be in court when my family and community saw me representing at a top university. There were so many communities which I felt I was a part of that were at risk with me coming out as a survivor. I never regretted my decision. I deeply get it while these women, especially the women of color, did not come forward. Unlike what white feminists tell you, my life is not just my own. It is interconnected and interdependent with so many others, especially for people of color and immigrant backgrounds. Building on uh, what you pointed out, Tanner, we have an entertainment industry that loves Cosby and is making all kinds of money. We probably have some racial pressure from white and black people who don't want to rip this guy down because he's such a credit uh, to America's success story, if not to the race that you belong to. And then we have this anonymous person talking about, you know, the the mind of the uh, of the victim who has a huge downside 
and publicly, you know, acknowledging that this has happened and little to no upside if you don't have the, the resources to, to juggle that. Any, uh, any additional comments on this one? Well, and it's not only about famous people in our society. I mean, we become desensitized to violence against women. You have, you know, women all over the world, actually. I think it's either one in four or one in three women all over the world are going to be victims of some kind of, you know, sexual violence in, during their lifetime. So I just think it's also the fact that, you know, we're seen as such second, third class citizens that we feel like, listen, there's no time to take care of this because people are not going to support me anyway. And you see this even online. I mean, the violence against women is just like yeah. permeating even a virtual reality. So I could, I can understand, uh, I can understand, but I hope that we can destigmatize yeah. that in the future or now or Agreed. yesterday. <laughs> Agreed a hundred percent. Moving on to our next, our other big topic from the previous episode, uh, the popo, uh, we're going to play a voicemail that we got and we got a bunch of them. So thanks uh, in advance for those who sent in, we'll get it to as many as we can. Uh, this is from David uh, about the dangers that police face in their job. Let's play that. It's not that dangerous of a job. This myth that officers and their supporters hide behind must be addressed. According to 2012 stats, the following jobs are significantly more dangerous. Logging, fishing, piloting aircraft, roofing, garbage collection, electric line installation and repair, truck driving, oil and gas extraction, farming and ranching, and construction work. A Slate article by David Feig put it succinctly, it is far safer to be an NYPD officer than an average black man in Baltimore. Good policing, the kind that involves building community relationships and preventing crime as opposed to reacting to it, is going to be necessary if we're committed to this whole large-scale capitalist society thing. I'm a cisgender man who is white and middle class. I've had several encounters with police over the years and they have all gone at least okay and in my favor. I have always been given the benefit of the doubt, and it is increasingly and heartbreakingly clear how privileged that experience is. So this idea that being a police officer is very dangerous and that somehow excuses the hair trigger responses or, or the occasional accidental murder, David's like, not really logging. If, if, by that logic, we should have you know black folk being killed uh, by like loggers or beekeepers, all these other uh, occupations that he points out are, are more by fishing. You know? <laughs> so, uh, what do you, what do you guys? Any comments on the uh, the presumption of danger involved in policing and how that is used as a cover to to explain some of these uh, acts of, uh, of of death? Well, two things. One, it it's kind of a false comparison in that theoretically, and I'm not saying they always do, but in theory. Police are serving the public good, same as firefighters, same as the military, same as astronauts. And we ascribe, rightly or wrongly, we ascribe... You're laughing. I'm so sorry. I prefaced it with saying theoretically. I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. When you say protect and serve and What's police up? in the same sentence, I can't help but laugh. Okay. Well, you can sorry. laugh. Sorry. You can laugh, but a large part of society sees it that way. And my I know. point is, is that we treat their risks, even if they are lower... We treat their risks in a different class than we treat other. The average motorist is at greater risk for death than an astronaut. But an astronaut, every time they go up, they are putting their life at risk for a purpose that, in theory, benefits us all. And so we put that in a different class. That's number one. Number two, yeah, logging is very dangerous, but the tree's not coming at you. <laughs> um, 
you know, one of the projects that I've been talking about that uh, it's now got a release date, uh, so I can announce it. It is a memoir of a cop that's going to be coming out in May. And uh, he's a unique guy. His name is Corey Pegues. And he was, at the peak of his career, he was the 13th highest ranking African-American officer in the NYPD. He was the first black precinct commander of the 67th Precinct, which is East Flatbush, which is one of the, the most uh, violent and important precincts in the NYPD. And he spent 20 years behind the blue wall of silence. And this book tears it all down. It's just everything right. from his point of view of what it's like to be a black cop and navigate that environment. The twist to the story is that for five years, before he became uh, one of the highest ranking officers in the NYPD, he was a crack dealer on the streets of Queens in the mid 80s. And what? this is where we need that scratch sound. Yeah, from like this is where we need our morning zoo crew uh, sound. So whoa, it's, whoa, whoa, what? what? It's <laughs> as we pitched it in, in the proposal, it's New Jack City meets Serpico. Um, and it's an amazing story of a guy who came from the wrong side of crime and being perceived as a thug and a, well, actually, I mean, he was very much a criminal Yeah. and turned his life around and became not just a cop, but a, a, a force for good in trying to improve, uh, policing in black communities, uh, as we'll see in the book. And, you know, he's got a lot of stuff in the book about what it's like and he agrees. It's not that dangerous. 90% of the time you're riding around in your car answering mm -hmm. a call because, you know, somebody, whatever, had cat in a tree or whatever. But you do have moments of really high stress. And part of the problem, there's two sides to the problem. One is that we've delegated police to deal with the fact that we don't have a social safety net in this country. So the mentally ill, abused children, spousal abuse, the first thing we do in all of those instances is we send in a cop who's got about six months worth of training. And you know, yeah, he, no, he, this is this is part of the the what I what I brought up in the last episode, which I kind of surprised myself with like a pseudo defense of law enforcement. Yeah, I was shocked that the episode throw... without any any white people in it was devoted mostly to empathy for cops. Trust Let me, me just I was add, shocked. Add that. <laughs> and it, wait a minute. That wasn't well, mo you said mostly. So mostly, that didn't include mostly. me. OK, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that there is. When you ask people to run toward the alarm or toward the danger, even if the hit rate is low of when their their lives are actually at stake, the presumption is that like you are in the moment where most people run away, your job is to mm -hmm. run toward that risk, that falling building, that trapped you know person in a car or or that person with a gun who means to do many others without guns harm. Uh, and that is a special category of uh, of risk that we ask, even if the amount of times that that risk becomes real is relatively low. So, so a, I want to throw in one other voicemail. Right. That's a but risk. It, 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 it is. Add it is. To that? It's a risk that you sign up for. It is. You know what you're doing. It is, but also... And then it takes a certain kind of character to even want to do that. And some of them, I'm, I haven't met one, but I'm sure some of them, like your cop, is you know undoubtedly coming from an altruistic place. But I also know some of them are just bullies. Some of them are just bullies. A lot of them. Even, and one of the things that, that we get into in the book, and I won't spoil the details, but you know, even for good, well-intentioned cops, the job can get you. And there's one story in the book about how he came close to being responsible for someone to getting seriously injured in custody. And he had to catch himself and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I got to step back and deal with this. And so it can happen. And we, instead of, yeah, we need to root out the bullies. There's always, and that's, that's one of the things that, you know, he talks about too, is that yeah. you always know who the hothead is, 
right? In every precinct, well, you know here, who the here's hot a, is. Here's a, here's a great segue to a, a former police officer who wrote in, and I think it'll be a nice connection to some of what Raquel was talking about in the last episode to kind of uh, share our perspectives a little more broadly. This is a former police officer named Kathleen uh, who writes, uh, in part, when I first started in the mid-90s, uh, the chief sat me down in his office and imparted a few words of wisdom. What I took to heart mostly was do unto others. Really, it was just that simple. Treat other people, whether they're white, black, brown, gay, straight, trans, pleasant or unpleasant, as you would want a family member that you like to be treated or as you yourself would want to be treated. Another thing I always told myself that I wish certain other officers would accept as fact was that stuff would get past me. That's right. Sometimes people would get away with something and that's okay as long as it wasn't a body in the trunk. Maybe it was easy for me because I wasn't on a power trip or because I'm female. Raquel spoke about not wanting to see the police as a monolith, but I really wish that the decent officers out there would realize that they are a monolith. When one police officer does something so outrageously horrible as to abuse or murder a fellow human being, all officers are represented by those actions. To double down or try to justify the act or to just clam up about it does nothing but put all of them in harm's way. So uh, we ask especially for people who are in law enforcement to connect with us. A special thanks to Kathleen for taking the time to do that and in your own way crossing a monolithic line that says thou shalt not talk ill of law enforcement, especially when one is a member, even former, of that community. Uh, so Raquel, you know, what are you hearing in, in that comment? And I mean, obviously you have some, some different thoughts on this. Jump on in there. Well, I mean, I'd like to thank Kathleen for writing for writing in and empathizing. But also, you know, one thing that I hope the next president does, aside from demilitarizing uh, the police force, is putting more women in power. Because I feel like women just inherently think in that way a lot and a lot clearer than the men do. Uh, they're less hot-headed, I think. And I still feel the same way that I did last week. So far, you know, I'm on my, on my quest to meet decent cops mm -hmm. I haven't actually I actually heard something from um, a political activist that my husband was talking to who I won't whose name I won't say because he didn't give me permission to talk about this he was in Ferguson for the anniversary of Mike Brown's death and heard policemen with his own ears telling people n-word get out the way so I mean right. the reality is one thing and I don't know what we want it to be is a whole other thing there's there's something I posted on Instagram a while back uh, to the effect of crime by anyone is a problem. Crime by crime fighters is a special type of problem. And I think that that standard is so high. And when you are tasked with being the law, when you break it, when you abuse it, when you manipulate it, it's far worse than uh, someone who's hungry, robbing, you know, a store. Uh, but when you, when it's your job to kind of uphold a thing and then you break that thing, you've broken that special trust. And, and that's why it's the the pain is so high. Uh, for There was another comment that came in in the same area that just thanked uh, Farai, especially, who's not with us today, but for bringing up the PTSD idea. Uh, if you m might have to fire your weapon knowing that you could kill someone, that's going to do something to your head. And you're in a kind of a war zone uh, potentially every day. And I don't know what the treatment is within police or how much shame there is in admitting that you're a human being uh, with an emotional core that isn't a rock. There's one more in this category that I want to get to, and it's mostly informational. So I wanted to share some context from Stephen in Cincinnati, uh, who graciously wrote in with some extra information 
uh, about the killing of Sam Dubose by the University of Cincinnati police officer. And uh, we were heaping a bit of praise, if not just high levels of respect for the district attorney who came out in no uncertain terms calling this a murder, describing the officer's behavior as asinine. And we haven't seen a lot of that with the relationship that DA and police have. So here's the history lesson from Stephen in Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati, of course, had riots in 2001 over the shooting of Timothy Thomas. The power structure is terrified of a recurrence of rioting, especially in light of the recent massive economic development and revitalization of some of the downtown neighborhoods where rioting took place last time. So in addition to the national climate, there's a ton of local political pressure from the black community seeking justice and from the business community protecting their investments. They are so paranoid, in fact, that even though they knew a murder indictment was being returned, they shut down UC and posted riot police all over the district. That's point one of three. Point two, to rebut the idea that the DA wasn't motivated to protect his own for once, the UC police force is completely independent from Cincinnati police. So Tensing wasn't one of his own, Officer Tensing, who uh, killed Mr. DuBose. He was free to act tough without any sort of internal political pressure from city officials or law enforcement entities. In fact, Dieters, the DA, is against university police, and this actually gives him some leverage to push for disbanding mm. those independent districts and bringing them under city's jurisdiction. I'm very skeptical that his tone would have been as damning if Tensing had been Cincinnati police. Last point, Dieters has a well-established track record of calling black people animals, breeders, etc. So while it is nice to actually see an indictment in one of these cases, it is extremely difficult to call his response authentic. The guy you saw in the press conference does not reflect the real Joe Dieters or his overall professional track record with regards to race. So just mm. a big up, huge big shout out. Up. Muchas gracias. Thank you to Steven. Uh, this is why we open these lines up because we can't be everywhere. We obviously mostly live in New York and appreciate uh, folks on the ground adding that local history and context. Damn. Damn. That's crazy. Yeah. No, wow. It's, uh, it's definitely uh, true that the, as he's saying, the relationship that this DA has to the local police and to the Cincinnati uh, University police, the, the, the sort of political ties up at the upper levels have a lot to do with how justice gets dispensed. And, and just to add a little note um, about I, the PTSD. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. I mean, I, I heard you guys even last time loud and clear that police officers have PTSD. But can you imagine the community that's running away from them when they're getting shot in the back? That community right. is born with PTSD. That community has PTSD. They're racialized and they have that stress. They carry that toxic stress from a very young age. Oh, so, absolutely. It's, it's, it's PTSD yeah. on both sides, which yeah. is especially, uh, and everyone's got guns, um, you know, <laughs> uh, which is the other part of the problem is that everybody's walking around with the assumption that everyone else is going to be armed to the teeth. That's that, part of what makes America number one, Tanner. Yeah. Uh, Sure. Yeah. So so we switch gears. Another uh, short one from the land of social media. We got Lucien Ronald from Twitter. Uh, show about race. I think the podcast should be a lot longer. Seems as if I'm always left wanting more. Happy I found the podcast. So are we, Lucien. And to make it longer, you could play it on slow speed on your device. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, that was funny. We got the slow podcast movement. Let's do it. Boom. Email. So Anna, uh, who is in college, wrote us, as you guys discussed this week, often it takes being made uncomfortable to realize your own racism and sexism. I agree that certain topics really are too sensitive to be touched by comedians, but barring all slightly politically incorrect humor seems absurd. Being totally, completely, and constantly concerned about saving the world is exhausting. 
Not being able to laugh about it is even worse. I'm not arguing for some whack racist and misogynistic comedian to have a show on campus, but it would be nice to see someone push the envelope a bit. Gotta burst that liberal arts bubble sometime. Also, I gotta recognize that I'm really fortunate to be at a school where my biggest problem is that people are too PC and not the other way around. Thanks, liberal arts. Hmm. Uh, and I wanted to pick this one out because I missed that show where you guys talked about Amy Schumer and comedy, etc. And uh, as someone who has done a lot of humor for the activist community, the lefty activist world, uh, I can personally attest to the humorlessness uh, of some of the people who I most agree with when it comes to accepting jokes. And there's, there's often folks who are just so uh, excited to be on the right side of history and justice and, and so precious about every topic that they just can't see humor being applied to race or sex or oppression or, or any other ism that they, uh, they may be fighting for. So I personally appreciate it, Anna, on the ground. Um, and say, yeah, the struggle is real if you're trying to you know, bring humor to, to dark places. So now we're going to go to uh, a set of voicemails about white folks. We got a bunch on the topic of what white people should be doing, how they can be interacting. A lot of this touching on our earlier topic of white fragility. Uh, let's first go to Kevin from Seattle, uh, who's asking about the role of friends of color. Hi, Raquel, Tanner, and Baratune Day. My name is Kevin from Seattle. I am responding to the Fragile White B-Side episode. Uh, I spent a lot of this asking, um, so these white people that are having these white fragility moments, do, do they have a black friend? Do they have a Hispanic friend or a Latina friend? Do, are they friends with people of color at all? Um, because a lot of conversations can happen organically with friends in a way that is very different than angry Facebook comments. Uh, when you start to think about race, when I start to think about race relations in this country, I stop thinking about black people or Hispanic Latina people or Asian people as these monolithic groups and I start to think of them as my friends Tim or Thomas and I start to think about what they talk about when they complain about the United States and our government and our current policies or our capitalism or the school to prison pipeline. So many of these issues, I just want to be like, so do you actually have a black friend? You like because you say you do. Do you actually know somebody who's originally from Mexico? Because you seem to say you do, but the way you act yourself, you either do and have completely decided to ignore what they're saying, or you really don't have a friend who's a person of color. Thank you, Kevin from Seattle, for asking that question in my book, How to Be Black. I wrote this chapter on how to be the black friend and kind of explain that that black friends are heroes uh in a race war that doesn't happen because they exist and that we should have a a vietnam wall to commemorate you know friends of color who diffuse situations there is something to be said for kind of the the social media internet version of white fragility versus like oh why don't you talk to the people you know and and think about what their experience is as opposed to kind of jump into the the mass media version. Uh, Raquel, Tanner, you guys have any thoughts on the uh, the value of friends of color, the role that they play in this 
discussion amongst uh, white folks? Well, it's to me, it's not really about that you have friends of color is who are they? Not what, you know, not right. not like what's what substance and are they are they for me, if you have a friend of color, if you're a white person, you have a friend of color and they really want to have a relationship, a meaningful, substantial relationship. They have to not be uncomfortable to make you as a white person uncomfortable to talk about race. You know, it's a bridge that has to be built and both people have to be very vested in this in the relationship in order for it to work and get past that discomfort. Yeah, I I think I mean, obviously, having social relationships with with people of different backgrounds and friends of color is good in and of itself. I don't think it's the thing that mitigates the sort of white defensiveness and fragility because that, you know, not to sound like a, a superhero movie that comes from within. Um, you know, it's 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 a natural <laughs> confidence that you have that like I could walk into a room of people of color and express my opinions and thoughts, even if you know someone might disagree with me, and I'm I'm good where I am, and I'm able to do that. And it's an internal insecurity um, that having a black friend next to you uh, is isn't going to change. You have to be sure-footed in where you're going. And to know where you're going, and that comes from your own knowledge of self and your knowledge of the landscape and your knowledge of what's around you. Um, and I got that a... from, you know, putting myself in an uncomfortable position when I wrote my book of just, you know, saying, all right, I don't know anything. I'm going to go out and talk to people and, and read history books and, and really put myself in a position to learn something. Um, and that took about four years, and I read probably a couple hundred books, and I talked to a few hundred people and it was a very long process and it was only after because you can't have someone else's opinions as your own defense right like and that's why so many white people who engage in the white in the conversation about race in public anyway come at it from a very liberal point of view or a very conservative point of view or they're like an academic with a phd in whatever Mm -hmm. because you can hide behind that you can hide behind the liberal dogma I, first of all, I just I want to interrupt yeah. you. I want a PhD in whatever. There you go. I want to go to the. It, well, it, it's the a useful degree to have. It applies to many it. things. I want um, a PhD in knowledge just of self. Almost anything, right? And so you can you can be a white person. You can go out from the conservative point of view and parrot all of the reasons why affirmative action is bad. You can be a, a guilty white liberal and and get behind all the white privilege talking points and go out and use that as your point of view. It is far more difficult to triangulate between all that. Form your own opinion have your own thoughts as your own person, and then go out in the world as a confident human being. So here's another great voicemail we got. It's from Christina. She's talking more about uh, white fragility and, and what to do about white folk. And I think the major question here is, how do you make white people want to confront this? Because white people have the power to ignore it. They're in the position of power and have chosen, or the majority have chosen for so long to ignore the issues of race in America. And Tanner has made the point that the best motivation for white people to grapple with issues of race might just be self-interest. But frustratingly, the more we try to force that self-interest or that view of equitable thoughts and actions on non-oppressed groups, in this case white people, the more pushback and the longer it will take, as I think we've seen, the more defensive people get. Uh, My sister's in therapy training, and she says that the moderator in a conflict, like in a couple's counseling conflict, has to validate the oppressor, like, for example, the bullying spouse, in order to make that person want to come to the table, in order to make that person not feel strictly under attack. The practitioner doesn't have to agree with the validation. They're feeding the oppressor, according to this practice. But it's what's proven effective in the past. And no doubt this sucks. This sucks. But 
we as a society haven't yet managed to quickly change human nature, and unless we want to move towards separatism, I think we do have to coddle the oppressor because no matter how true the message is, no matter how true it is that equality is better for all parties, as Jay Smooth pointed out with his videos, the message doesn't get through without presentation or without a receptive audience. As a member of the oppressive class myself, I feel like my experience is validated every day just by walking down the street or calling into a race podcast to have my opinion heard. Raquel, I agree with you. I think we need to stop coddling the oppressive class, but I agree with Tanner that reality has shown that no matter how much it does suck, that just hasn't worked yet. Coddling the oppressor is, is, is a great title for like a whole lifestyle brand. Right. Uh, I can see t-shirts and hoodies and everything. That was, for me, a very uh, honest and frustrating and probably true comment uh, from, from one of our listeners. Uh, who wants to, to jump on this, if anyone? Well, I think, A, she's right. You do have to, you know, whether it, it's in anything, whether it's an argument between you and your spouse, if you just attack or, or you, with your parents or with any coworker, anything, if you attack someone head on, you're not going to get where you need to go. You need to go the long way around to get their empathy and identification with what you're trying to do and then slowly turn them to where you want to be. And yes, it is absolutely galling and should be galling to people of color that they have to turn around and coddle these people who, but that's, that's just how you deal with people. That's the only way to do it. And I, I mean, I, I think like, I hear you and I agree with you. Just like Christina's tone and everything she said was to me almost perfect. That might've been a perfect comment. It was. She was like, yeah. And it sucks. And it's like, fuck, it does suck. And the other thing about how we convince white people to do this, and all I can say is that to have that white fragility, that defensiveness, that inability to say something or that fear of saying something, it holds you back in so many ways that you don't even realize because you live in the white person's world and you never have to think about it, right? And it's only you lose that and then you realize, oh my God, it's like once you really sort of step back and understand how racism works in this country, it's like Neo in the Matrix when he sees, oh, this is all ones and zeros and I can <laughs> yes. manipulate this and that's how racism works and I can do this and I can move this around. And, uh, and so when you step back and understand race for yourself, you liberate and empower yourself in that way that you can be a white man walking through this country and get just about anything you want through a sense of entitlement and braggadocio and, and swagger. Or... You can have all of that and have the ability to navigate what this country is becoming, which is an increasingly a place of color or a place you know, with people of color, and have the power to navigate that too. I mean, to be a white person and to be able to get in a cocktail party discussion with a black person about an issue of race and to have a discussion and actually kind of, you know, win the argument or have the upper hand or have an informed opinion, it's like, huh, that's weird. It's an empowering thing to be able to navigate it and not be afraid like 99% of the white people who are out there. The problem is, first, when you're a white person, you first approach this issue. 
it is so daunting. And the first you know year or two, you wrestle with it. It's almost like running a triathlon. You have to swim through the ocean of white guilt, and you have to climb the mountain of white fragility, and then you have to... I want, to, I want this to be animated. I want right. someone to make a cartoon about a white person gaining some kind of race consciousness. Right. And then and you have to like, you have to <laughs> you have to bike through the desert of white ignorance. I don't know, the metaphor got twisted, but <laughs> and it when you first get into it, it it is it, it is very uncomfortable and it's very difficult. But like anything else that's hard in life, once you get to the other side of it, you're like, "Huh. All right, I got this. Like, I did it. I'm on the other side and now I can walk around more with more knowledge of the world." more sure of myself, uh, better. I'm a better citizen of my country. That's why you do it. It sounds like such a romantic, idealistic kind of ride to self-awareness about race that I don't think we have time for. And I think that sometimes you don't have to have conversations where you're like, you're the devil, you're the white devil because you misspeak or something. I don't think it has anything to do with that. Just saying, stop coddling, check your racial ignorance, and have more frank conversations. Um, I have a very good, very good, one of my but dearest you're, you're, friends. You're, the point you're excuse missing me, is, yeah. I'm having a, a, one of my dearest friends. She um, is a white woman. We hear her talk all the time. She has a child with an Afri- you know, African-American man who identifies as Af- African-American. And she was angry about something and called him the N-word. Right? And I said, listen, I didn't scream at her. Or, I said, that makes me feel really uncomfortable. And we should really kind of talk about this because you have a son who's half black. And then we have a conversation and we, we move past it. If you want to come to the table and have that conversation, you have to be able to feel the discomfort, embrace the discomfort in order to move on, to push through. And I don't think that I couldn't have had that conversation with her by holding her hand and coddling her. We just had to have a frank, like, yo, that's fucked up, dude. Like, that's not the way, you know, the world works. I don't think we need to go through these long, epic um, uh, journeys. I'd, well, and. I don't actually hear that as much of a conflict in that because what you didn't do was call your friend a terrible racist and like no. never talk to her again. No, of course not. Right, you so no, so that was so, a frank but form a way, of coddling. It didn't coddle yeah, you, her. Exactly, you coddled her. I don't know how to coddle. You didn't attack but her. But I think I didn't Raquel, I didn't physically you, attack her, but I told her in very I, in my own way like listen, that shit is not right. And I know I mean she was crying because it doesn't take anything to make somebody cry over stuff like that when you talk about race. But it was a frank conversation, and I don't think I don't I don't believe that I was holding the way I've seen it, holding her hand and walking her through this and being all like on a romantic you know walk down the beach, talking about race. I just feel like it's we we can't be so like patient and gooey and saccharine about the way we approach this with our white friends if we're to have meaningful so this, conversation this... I mean relationships with them. And I think this is a great segue into the upcoming episode where we're talking about the tactics of Black Lives Matter, uh, whether, as Larry Wormore put it, there should be black manners mattering as well, and you know, respectability politics and just how nice, polite, and uh, how you should approach you know, white people who think they're doing well, want to do better, uh, how patient, how saccharine, or, or just how pragmatic, is another way to put it, you should be with the emotions of all those at the table. In the interest of time, uh, I will summarize a few of the other things that came in. We won't be able to hit it all. I think one of them is worth coming back to in the future because the timeliness is is pretty open-ended. We got a a complaint about our decidedly East Coast urban tone, uh, which comes in every now and then. And I think that's going to be a function of us all uh, mostly living in New York City. 
but you know, we're using this B side to, to bring that stuff in. So I don't want to totally dismiss uh, Mark who wrote that in, but we're working on it, buddy. We're working on it. Uh, we had a really thoughtful, lengthy, uh, almost like research uh, essay on the, the state of race in Australia. And it was from a man named Nicholas. And he provided historical context, talking in particular about uh, a footballer, uh, Aboriginal footballer named Adam Goods or Goodis. I'm not sure what the pronunciation is. Uh, and there's a really interesting situation, uh, ugly situation going on over there that, that I vote, you know, we come back to in the future. But just want to thank uh, someone from across a whole nother ocean for tuning in. And this could be our international conversation uh, about conversations about race uh, from time to time, at least. Uh, Raquel, we got a, a thank you email heavily targeted at you, but I think all of us, a lot of people thanking us for modeling emotionally skilled conversations. And uh, so uh, we got a black Republican wrote in. He was angry uh, that we all seem to be Democrats and are taking that party's belief in black vote for granted. We can, the election will give us ample opportunity to talk about just what the Republicans have to say about folks of all colors. And we got uh, another a query from someone who was like half Latina and just realized it and wants to know, you know, how she becomes Latina later in her life. So I think at a minimum, she Raquel, my book. <laughs> uh, you and she might become pen pals. Exactly. So, so uh, to the anonymous half Latina that wrote in, please read Bird of Paradise, How I Became Latina by Raquel Cepeda. Uh, a lot of your questions are probably answered in, in that book. Uh, I just want to thank all of the listeners and uh, the social media emailing, voice memo shooting, uh, history lesson sending folks out there who are part of our national conversation uh, about conversations about race. Please tune in. We have a great Super Dope Fly episode coming up, episode number 11. Tune in and chime in. We are Show About Race on Twitter and Facebook. We are Show About Race on Gmail as well. Hit us up with your text-based or voice-based memos and try to keep it short. If you're going to send a voice memo under two minutes, it gives you a better shot of getting on air. We have less editing to do. I'm Baratunde. See you in the future.